Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. In this episode, Obesity Medicine Specialist and OMA Clinical Education Director, Dr. Nicholas Pennings, leads a clinical conversation with an industry expert. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, a clinical leader in obesity medicine. A 43-year-old female presented to the office for a second opinion regarding bariatric surgery. She had struggled with her weight for decades, going on various diets, which would result in weight loss, but what bothered her the most was that whenever she lost weight, most of her weight loss was in her upper body with very little loss below her waist. Now, with a weight of 329 pounds and a BMI of 51, her legs were heavy, sensitive to touch, and subject to easy bruising. Interestingly, her mother had similar challenges with her weight. Her physical exam revealed tender adiposity tissue in her lower abdomen, markedly enlarged buttocks, hips, and upper thighs with tissue that was nodular and fibrotic. Thigh skin had a mattress-like lumpy appearance. The enlarged tissue in her legs abruptly ended with a cuffing shape at the ankles. It was evident the patient did not have a fat pattern typical of generalized obesity, but had a condition called lipedema instead. Her treatment plan shifted from bariatric surgery, which would likely have had little benefit on her lower body lipedema tissue, to liposuction with an experienced lipedema surgeon. Hi, I'm Dr. Nick Pennings, Chair of Family Medicine at the Campbell University School of Osteopathic Medicine and Executive Director of Clinical Education at the Obesity Medicine Association. And with me today on the podcast is Karen Herbst, MD, PhD, a board-certified endocrinologist who serves as medical and research director for Total Lipedema Care in Beverly Hills, California. Dr. Herbst presented at the OMA Fall 2022 Obesity Summit in Anaheim, California. Her talk was titled, Emerging from the Shadows, Recognizing and Treating Lipedema. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Nice to be here. Nice to have you again. Obesity is diagnosed based on BMI, with a BMI of 30 considered obesity. But we know that not all body fat is the same. We have brown fat, we have beige fat, as well as visceral and subcutaneous adipose tissue. In addition, there, the different types of fat, there are issues with where that body fat is deposited. And that brings us to what we're gonna be talking about today is lipedema. So Dr. Herbst, how do you explain what lipedema is to clinicians? So there's a lot to explain about lipedema and there's a lot we don't know, but I usually say that lipedema fat is unhealthy, painful fat that's highly resistant to loss by diet, exercise, and even bariatric surgery. And that may be the fibrotic component that you mentioned. It most often occurs in women, especially beginning at times of pregnancy, puberty, and menopause. And these are times when our hormones are changing, but also uh, weight is changing at, during those times as well. And then, as you mentioned, there's this disparity of the body habitus. So the, the legs and arms are affected more than the upper trunk. So the back is usually not affected. The chest is not affected. The breasts can have variable size, but the uh, legs and arms definitely have this lipedema tissue, which is painful, edematous, and has easy bruising. And there tends to be a genetic pattern or a family history associated with that. Is that right? There's definitely a, a, 
uh, genetic component to most cases of lipedema. And um, a lot of studies report 60% uh, or more say that they have um, lipedema in their families. And, and we don't think it's one gene. We think it's probably more than one gene. I see. So those distinct characteristics. So what are some of the things that clinicians should be looking for when they're evaluating patients to help them decide whether or not these patients need to be evaluated for lipedema? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sometimes it is difficult to differentiate lipedema from non-lipedema obesity. And in the uh, vignette that you presented, you mentioned a cuff of tissue, um, which can occur especially at the ankles and the, the wrists. And this is because while the arms and legs are affected, the hands and feet are spared. And so you get this bulge of tissue right next to um, hand, the hand, and the hand has very few fat cells in it, which may explain why the hand often does not grow fat tissue in lipedema. But there's also other places to look for unusual fat in lipedema, and this includes a, a tissue lobule that overhangs the elbow, so oftentimes you see a, a huge amount of fat on the upper arm that's hanging and even heavy. And then the, the forearm is much less affected. Uh, you can also have a medial knee lobule that is very tender to palpation. So if, if I had to say there's, you know, where's one spot you wanna put your finger to see if they have painful uh, tissue, that would be that medial knee lobule. And then interestingly, we're on your calves, you're supposed to be able to palpate your shin all the way down. You should feel bone on, on the anterior part of your calf, but in lipedema, it's covered, usually covered by fat tissue. And then the nodules that you mentioned, those nodules tend to be very diffuse in the tissue. They can be of all different sizes from, the, from a grain of sand to a pea, a pea, which is gonna be kind of a soft lobule to a pearl size, which is gonna be a very firm nodule to, um, you know, just huge masses the size of a walnut or a fist. And then in lipedema, you're, you're not going to find pitting edema very often, and that helps differentiate it from lymphedema. So you're going to look for kind of spongy tissue, especially on the calves. And then that prevalent fibrosis that you mentioned, usually the calves are very, very firm, but you can also find a lot of fibrosis on the hips but oftentimes it's during surgery that we really are exposed to how fibrotic lipedema tissue is. I see. I, you know, I, I see a lot of women complain of knee pain. Uh, and, you know, many times it is arthritis of the knee and osteoarthritis that has evolved, especially with higher BMIs. Uh, but also sometimes I think it's confused with these tender areas on the medial aspects of the knees, these lobules of fat that have our are seemingly very sensitive, that that is a, a component of knee pain as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's um, all different types of pain in lipedema and the lipedema pain has not been well-defined, but often women with lipedema have um, knee pain due to arthritis, as you mentioned, a lot of them have undergone um, total knee replacement. And we think this in part, well, of course is linked to excess weight, but it's also linked to the shape of the tissue around the knee and maybe it changes the trajectory of the knee as it moves. And then also women with lipedema often have hypermobile joints, which also likely plays a role in that knee pain. And they can have you know, pain elsewhere, like a lot of them have lordosis, that's another sign to look for, and they can have low back pain along with their lipedema pain or lipedema tissue pain. 
So do you routinely evaluate women for hypermobility when you're evaluating patients for lipedema? I do. I, I use the Biden score. And then if I do find a positive Biden score, I go on to use the Biden criteria, which is a little bit more complicated. And if I really feel that there, if there's nine points to the Biden score, which involves checking the hands, the elbows, the knees and the hips, if they score nine out of nine, uh, and I think that they might have um, something more than just uh, hypermobility, I might actually send them to a clinical geneticist or um, another genetic specialist just to get uh, a little bit more evaluation and because I don't want to miss anything. Now, a number of women that have come in have also been previously diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Is this um, a misdiagnosis? Is there an overlap between these conditions? So there's not been a, a good study to determine whether women with lipedema have or have not fibromyalgia. I know there is a blood test that's available and that might be helpful in the future to do that. But I think um, often women with lipedema are misdiagnosed as fibromyalgia, but that's not to say that they could not have a concurrent fibromyalgia with their lipedema. Okay. And speaking of, of uh, different diagnoses, one of the other things that they're often uh, diagnosed as is having lymphedema, but that's very distinct from lipedema, or, or maybe there's some overlap in late stages, but how do you distinguish between the, the lymphedema from the lipedema? Um, there's a, a couple of different ways, but often there's, some, there's a history that precedes the development of lymphedema. For example, somebody had a history of, of breast cancer or uterine cancer. So they've had a surgery and, and treatment that leads to lymphedema. So um, actually talking to your patient about their history is, is going to be really important. Often lymphedema is asymmetric, usually affects one leg more than the other. And if I ever see a, a woman who has lipedema that has asymmetric legs or arms, I usually go ahead and evaluate her for lymphedema. Um, because of the concern that, that she's got this asymmetry. Also, you, you see pitting edema often in lymphedema and not lipedema. Uh, and, but a person with lymphedema can go on to develop a significant amount of um, fibrosis and no longer have pitting edema. And sometimes we've, we've looked at pictures of people who have lymphedema especially primary lymphedema, which can affect both legs or both arms. And if they wear tight shoes on their feet, they reduce the amount of lymphedema in their feet, and then they could look exactly like lipedema. And so really in that case, it's, it's focusing on your history and a good examination of the tissue, especially um, if the legs are affected, the lower part of the legs, because that's gonna be a lot more fibrotic in lymphedema. And in lymphedema, the skin is a lot thicker and the fat tissue is a lot thicker or a lot more fibrotic, whereas in lipedema, the, the skin is, is soft and normal. So I think that that's a really good sign to look for is that, that skin okay. fibrosis in lymphedema. Those are some really good diagnostic clues. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2019, you organized a collection of specialists in lipedema to develop the U.S. standards of care for lipedema which were published in 2021. How can clinicians use these standards to better understand and treat lipedema? 
So we wrote the standard of care with clinician, clinicians in mind because we know that lipedema is still not as well known as obesity and it, it's, it's misunderstood. So we made it as a resource for you, the clinician. So in the beginning, we talked about the how to, how to diagnose lipedema and the differential diagnosis of lipedema. And then we provide the rest of uh, the information in the standard of care on treatment recommendations for you. So um, what do you do when you diagnose a patient with lipedema? How can you better treat them? How can you empower them? And how can you empower yourself? So we provide information on medicines that you can use and some medicines not to use on um, supplements that are important. Also how to refer to physical therapy or occupational therapy for manual lymphatic drainage or deep tissue therapy. When to refer to a, a vein specialist or to get evaluated for the veins or, or when to be concerned about arterial disease. And also what kind of surgeries would you recommend for the patient? Would you recommend bariatric surgery because of concurrent obesity? Or because they have pure lipedema, would you send them to a lipedema surgeon? It also uh, provides insight into future research and research questions that will better help us understand lipedema. So it helps you kind of think about the future. So I think it's just a great resource on how to diagnose and treat your patient with lipedema. And that it is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and patients with lipedema, because it's been so resistant to dietary interventions and other therapeutic interventions, uh, often really struggle with managing their condition. And that really can take an emotional toll on patients with lipedema. Uh, do you find patients with lipedema are more likely to be grappling with some mental health issues? Um, yes, I do. I, I, you know, they've been told for years and years that they are just fat and they need to diet and exercise, yet their diets can be um, really, really healthy and they can exercise more than you or, you and I, but they still can't lose that tissue. So, so they tend to, to get um, depressed. And in the literature, there's about a 35% um, or 35% of women with lipedema tend to have depression and about 30% have anxiety. And they also have a high interpersonal sensitivity. So they're very aware of and sensitive to the behavior and feelings of others. And this has actually been published. And so when somebody tells them, oh, you're just fat, you just need to diet and exercise, that takes a huge toll on a woman with lipedema. And she can um, actually become more anxious and depressed. And this is also linked to, um, the interpersonal sensitivity is also linked to anxiety and also something called effective reactivity. So as they hear this information that you're providing to them they and they get upset about what they're hearing, they, they can outwardly express their internal emotions. And that means that whatever is happening in their brain is being expressed in their body, which can lead to inflammation, which can worsen their lipedema. So I think it all of this means that yes, there's a lot of mental health in, in the lipedema population, and you can read about it in the literature. And I think you have to be very sensitive to the fact that they may have struggled for years and just be very gentle with them and, and very supportive and refer them to mental health experts um, as needed. And one of the added challenges around that is some of the medications that we use for anxiety and depression uh, can promote weight gain, which can make the situation worse. Is that a, another issue that you've seen in patients with lipedema? 
Absolutely. I, a lot of the antidepressants and antipsychotics are associated with weight gain. And so I think working with a mental health provider and when you, you, you know, refer to them, say, please avoid medications that increase weight gain. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Um, so when we're managing lipedema, there's lots of different components to that. There's dietary interventions, physical activity, uh, working on the behavioral things that we talked about, and uh, pharmaceutical interventions that might be uh, indicated. Um, so when it comes to dietary interventions, what are some of the things that you typically recommend to patients with lipedema? So we recommend um, anti-inflammatory eating plan. So that does include the ketogenic diet, but it also just includes, um, you know, Mediterranean diet or modified Mediterranean diet, or just general anti-inflammatory with um, good, healthy protein and lots of vegetables and also um, fruits as tolerated. And, 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 I, I, and I think it works, I think it works really well, but what I found it, that kind of adds a comp, complicating factor is some of them say, I have an eating disorder and therefore um, I don't want to talk about my diet. So I think you have to be prepared to um, kind of deal with some of those challenges because a lot of these women with lipedema do develop eating disorders. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I emphasize is the, the foods that can make this worse, uh, particularly sugars and refined carbohydrates, uh, and how those will stimulate insulin production and insulin in turn promotes, stat, uh, promotes fat storage. So uh, understanding also what drives it and, or what may drive it, we don't know for certain these things, mm -hmm. um, but uh, what may drive it can help them make better decisions too, and not feel like they just have to restrict themselves, but instead focus on the health quality of their diet. Exactly. I, I tend not to count, have them count calories, but rather choose healthy food options because some of them can be so um, disabled and have uh, trouble with mobility that they're going to choose the easy options to eat. And those include tend to include fast foods and, and highly processed foods and also sugars. Yeah. Uh, and speaking about the challenges with mobility, what kind of physical activity recommendations do you make for patients with lipidemia? So I ask them to do anything they possibly can. Find something that they like to do that's really fun or that they can do with their friends, but try and move every day. And water, exercise, anything in water is would be great if everyone with lipidemia could do that because it tends to move the tissue in the water all the way down to the bone. And that gets provides treatment to the superficial lymphatic and venous system, as well as the deep lymphatic and venous system. Whereas, um, you know, just like gentle walking wouldn't do quite the same thing. But so if they can't get into water, we recommend things like um, uh, cycling or whole body vibration or elliptical, some kind of, you know, non-impact exercises to improve flow of fluid through their tissue. Yeah, and then the, the hydrostatic effect of water compressing uh, the legs also is a benefit too in the water-based exercises, right? Yeah. Yep, if they could all scuba dive on a daily basis, that would be great. <laughs> yes, um, and so we have some old medications for the treatment of obesity. We have some new medications. Uh, anything in particular that you recommend in patients with lipedema? 
So uh, when I see a patient with lipedema, my first thought is, how, what kind of inflammation do you have? You know, are you generate, is your body generating inflammation and in, in what form? For example, do you have venous disease that, um, where your veins are inflamed? Do you have a lot of allergies, which includes um, having hyperactive mast cells and how, you know, how can we treat that? Um, and then sometimes I, I start off with metformin, especially um, if I think there's a, a lot of fibrosis in the tissue because metformin is well known to decrease fibrosis. But I've been moving towards the GLP-1 agonists and GLP-1 um, agonist combinations uh, with other medications to treat my patients. And there seems to be um, a nice amount of weight loss with that. I can't really say whether it's um, lipedema weight loss or non-lipedema weight loss, but they've been struggling for so long just to lose weight in any other with any other method. So I'm very pleased with what with what's happening with the GLP-1 agonists. Yeah, I think that's a keen uh, area of interest that I'll be, I utilize those whenever I can too, and, and uh, interested to see how, how that works in my patients with lipedema. In addition to the newer agents, the terzepatide, which works mm -hmm. on GLP-1 and GIP. Yep. All right. And there's, of course, there's a whole host of other options for compression and pneumatics and a vibration plate that you talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and those are great. Uh, those are covered in the standards of care. I would recommend everybody look at the standards of care for lipedema. Um, so I want to end with one question, one last question. What is your favorite piece of advice that you like to give patients when uh, treating lipedema? Um, I tell them that we don't know everything about fat that we thought we knew, that um, fat is very different in each person, and that because because of that, I'm going to treat them as a single person and I'm going to individualize their treatment and their treatment may be different from somebody else's treatment. And we might add things, we might take things away, it might take us a little time to get um, to where we really feel comfortable and we're actually being successful in helping them reduce their lipidema fat tissue. Um, and that the primary treatment really for them is, is, is food. Food and uh, food and exercise. Food is your medicine. Exercise is your medicine. Yeah, and while lipedema is a very kind of characteristic type of body fat distribution, it's also different in each patient. And so I see a large amount of individual variability in the patients that I see for lipedema. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Karen. You can You're find welcome. Dr. You can find Dr. Herb's OMA conference lecture, Emerging from the Shadows, Recognizing and Treating Lipedema in the OMA Academy. Uh, where else can our listeners learn about your work? Uh, they can learn a little bit more about me on uh, my website, totallipedemacare.com or on lipomadoc.org. But we also are on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, that's great. Thank you for being with us today. If you like this podcast, please share it with a friend and help the OMA as we strive to advance clinician understanding of the disease of obesity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity, a Disease. For more information about obesity medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org backslash podcasts. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.